0: A couple of months ago, I ran into a uh, man uh, who I had uh, spent some time counseling with him and his wife a few years ago. Actually, like seven years ago when we got the file out and looked it up. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he called up and said, "Uh, Wife and I want to come talk to you. And uh, when they came in, they just said, Boy, you know, we're just so thankful for what the Lord taught us then. We've been doing well. And they just wanted to say hi and catch up and and it just uh, you know they were when people come in for marriage counseling usually they're not happy when they come in hopefully they're happy when they go out when they get right with the Lord and these people were happy and that was exciting and it just reminded me of Psalm 133 1 how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity And uh, I just thought of, you know, brothers in the Lord or brother and sister in the Lord and living together in unity. What a wonderful thing for a husband and wife to dwell together in unity. Marriage is a wonderful creation of God when it is handled according to his plan. And the biggest single passage of scripture on marriage in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 7. There's a lot of other passages that touch on it, but this is the biggest single passage The biggest single passage, and we've been working through this the last few weeks, and uh, we're coming down to the last uh, piece of this passage today. I want to just summarize what we've learned so far and encourage any of you that have missed some of the previous sermons to get them, not because my preaching is so great, but because this is really important stuff. This really is a foundational passage to the idea of Christian marriage. And the way the world thinks about marriage is... Quite a bit different from what God says, and we really need to be well versed in it. Um, summary of the teaching so far: I've summarized it into two categories. First of all, to the Christian spouse or the Christian married to a Christian, he says this: sexual affection is mandatory in marriage. He says Christians are not to divorce; they are to work through their difficulties and and have a positive marriage. A Christian spouse is not to divorce an unbeliever. A Christian spouse is God's prime means of reaching an unbelieving spouse and children. And if an unbelieving spouse divorces a believer, the believer is free to remarry. Those are the high points of what this passage says to a Christian who is married. But it has quite a bit to say to the single Christian as well. It says singleness can be an excellent choice. In other words, throughout this passage... Over and over, the Apostle Paul is going, I'd really encourage you to consider singleness. Boy, that is, that is upside down from where a lot of people are thinking today, and if you're a single person, you know that because people are always trying to push you toward marriage. The Apostle Paul was trying to push you toward singleness. Marriage is the place for godly sexual expression. If God has not given you the ability to be single, then God wants you to be married in terms of sexual expression. Neither marriage nor singleness is superior or mandatory. I just heard this morning, I was watching, we like to watch the CBS uh, magazine show in the morning. There's always some interesting things. They talked about the shakers, and you've all heard of shaker furniture, no doubt. The shakers were a religious sect, um, an evangelical sect, if you will, by and large, evangelical. But they believed in celibacy. So do you know how many of them are left? Okay, you know, marriage is not just for the propagation of the church, but celibacy is not superior spiritually. No matter how big the church is, it tries to sell that to you, it's not true. But neither is marriage superior. But what is important is to find God's path for you. God says marriage is a wonderful thing, obviously, but He also says there may be times when He calls people to singleness. God enables some people for singleness. Paul refers to it as a gift. God has given each man a gift, and uh, you may have a gift to be able to stay single. Lord bless you in, in that. Progress in the Christian life is not impeded by the external conditions of life. That seems out of place in the middle of a passage on marriage, but what he's saying is the fact that you're single does not slow you down as a Christian, the fact that you're married does not have to slow you down as a Christian, The fact that anything that's going on in your life cannot stop you from living for the Lord. That's a tremendously important truth. And then while marriage is godly, it also complicates life. And that's not a criticism of marriage. Paul states this as a statement of fact. When you get married, he says, you have to care for the things of your partner and the things of children as they come along. While marriage is godly, it also complicates life, especially in the face of Christian persecution, This theme is going to come up again today as we consider the last passage. But that's why Paul was encouraging singleness at that moment in time with that group of people. Persecution of the church had already started in Jerusalem. The apostle Paul was the persecutor. He knew how much... The Jewish leadership hated Christianity, and he knew there was persecution, and he essentially said, look, if you get married, it's going to be harder to walk with Christ in the face of persecution. And I believe that's the important context here. He didn't say singleness is better in general. He said at certain times in, certain in your life, at certain times in the world history, singleness may be the better choice. The priority of serving God must be a prime consideration in any decision to marry or to stay single. And that's really culminated at verse 35 when he says, I want you to be undistracted in serving the Lord. We need to make our choices for marriage such that we can serve the Lord together, not have one partner pulling away and one partner pulling toward. Today, what do we come to in the last part of this, this uh this great chapter, we come to the Christian parent and the widow. He's talked to married people. He's talked to single people. Now he's going to talk a little bit to a Christian parent and to a widow. Um, God is, uh, is, uh, is gracious to touch base on, in all the areas where we need information. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, starting in Verse 36. If any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity... But has power over his own will and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, then she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she's happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. There he is again pushing singleness, okay? He believed that that was a a good choice to make. Now, the first first verse here is a tough one to translate, and if you have an NIV, uh, the New International Version, you notice that it's translated different than what I read. The King James looks like this, And the NIV looks like that, and it gives it quite a different meaning. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin, I'm reading from the NIV now, toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants, he is not sinning, they should get married. Now one of these translations says this is about a, a husband, or excuse me, about a father who is either giving or not giving his daughter and marries. The other translation says it's about a man who is engaged either choosing to marry or not to marry. Let me give you a couple of of, uh, aspects to both of these situations. Um, And let me say, first of all, it's a hard passage to translate. Okay, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't parade that way. Uh, But if you were to go and look at the commentaries I have, you could stack some of them over here and some of them over there. Some of them following the NIV, some of them following the, the traditional interpretation. And you say, well, it's a little tough when God's word is ambiguous. It is, but there's a big point which is not ambiguous. So hang on to that for a minute. If we consider the idea of engagement and we say, why would God have to write that about engagement? Here's the deal In that day, when people got engaged, it was a legally binding agreement. Okay? The only real binding today is the, the diamond ring, okay? And if the engagement is broken today, the big question is, do I get the ring back or not, okay? Now, it could, it could also go to the extent if you're getting closer to a wedding and you're having one of those uh, big whoopla weddings where you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars and you've already shelled out, you know, you've put a deposit down for somebody like my daughter to do the wedding photography, and, and that kind of thing. Then you're saying, hey, am I going to get my money back because you broke, the, uh, you broke the engagement? I mean, there's those kind of questions. But in that day, when a father got together with another father and they agreed together that there was going to be a marriage between a son and a daughter, it was a legally binding agreement. Now, they waited for a year, generally. It was at least a year until the, until the marriage. The other thing you have to consider is that some of those agreements were made when the children were little. As in, 10 years from now, my son's going to marry your daughter. That puts a little different spin on the dad, right? Okay? Okay, it's a, it's a whole different thing. The engagement was a legally binding situation. And so, properly, to get out of an engagement, you had to have a divorce. And the divorce had to have cause as in somebody's been unfaithful, you know, whatever, that type of thing. And so it would not be unusual for people to be engaged for a long time. And then here comes Christianity into the picture. Somebody gets saved, and the Apostle Paul is saying, look, there's persecution coming, you should consider singleness. And the church of Corinth gets involved saying, you folks should get married or you shouldn't get married. And there's all this pressure swirling about, and the Apostle Paul says, hey, you want to get married, fine. You want to not get married, fine. It's okay by God either way. Okay, he, 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 he basically says there's no compulsion here. If there is a compulsion because of age or some of these things, that's fine. Now, the other scenario is with the dad. The dad makes this legally binding agreement with another dad, and the children essentially have to go along. Now, I don't know exactly how that all worked out. Did, did people run off and get married? I'm pretty sure some of them must have. I just can't imagine that never happening. You know what I'm saying? Did the children have a voice in the decision about marriage? I would assume they did most of the time. But all we know is that fathers had a strong hand in the decision. My inclination is to go with the the father aspect, uh, the father translation here, and the reason is this. When you come to verse 37 it says it talks about the keeping and the giving and then the verse 38 the giving again the tone of the passage other than other than the ambiguity in verse 36 the tone seems to be favoring the father and that situation and for that reason that's the way i'm taking the passage and i want to share it with you paul has already talked about the rightness of marriage and the value of singleness. So he's not covering that ground again. He's not talking to the people considering marriage here. He's talking to a father, and I believe that he is saying this. Now, please listen till I'm done with this point, lest you get a mistaken idea. A father is free to make a decision before God regarding the marriage of his children, The Apostle Paul was arguing for freedom on both sides of the coin. He was was trying to say, look, Dad, don't be under compulsion by anybody. Only be under, under God's leadership. Don't be pressed by a society that says this or by a church that says that or by individuals here or there. Be free. Now, I don't believe this passage is talking about the individual selection of a mate for a child. Here's why I don't believe that. Look at verse 38. If, that's, if, we, if we wanted to take the passage quite literally that way, then we'd go to verse 38 and say, so he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give in marriage does better. If we want to look at verse 36 and say, the decision for marriage is up to the dad, then we have to go to verse 38 and say, dad, it's always better to say no all the time. Now, when we go there, we go, well, that doesn't make sense. Because obviously, God knows the race has to continue. The church has to continue. You know, we don't want to be like the shakers. Okay? And, and so, we, what this is talking about is not the selection process as in, oh, I want my daughter to marry this one, but not that one. This is talking about the issue of marriage in general, and whether or not marriage is going to be appropriate for certain people in a certain time and a certain set of circumstances. And again, the context here, he talks about the, the distress that they were living under. And I believe the most, the most likely understanding of this passage is this. The Apostle Paul says, look, Dad, you know there's persecution going on. Do you think it's wise for your daughter to get married in this environment, right now. And he says, you have the right to choose one way or the other. Now, does that indicate that dads today are the final arbiter in the decision of marriage? I don't believe it does indicate that. I believe it indicates that in that society, in that time, because of how marriages were formed... They had that ultimate authority. I believe now, though, that the issue of helping our children succeed in marriage flows along a different line. What is the best way to help your children succeed in marriage? It has become fashionable in the last 20 years to talk about the parents having a heavy involvement in the decision of who a child will marry, okay? I'm not against that out of, out of hand. You'll see as we come back in, at the end of this sermon to a point, you'll see what I'm going to say. But the question remains, what is the best way to help your child succeed in marriage? Because I have no doubt that the Christians who are promoting the idea of parents controlling this situation are trying to get a good outcome for their children, Nobody wants their child to fail in marriage. I mean, I couldn't be happier with my daughter finding this guy down in Los Angeles. Um, I had nothing to do with finding him. I had something to do at the end about saying yes or no. And I think that's appropriate. We'll come back to that. But I couldn't be happier. I'm thrilled. I would be disappointed if she married somebody who didn't walk with the Lord and so on and so forth. But the question is, how how can I help make that happen? Do I help make it happen by control? Or do I help make it happen by being a devoted follower of Christ myself? Now, what do I mean by that? I... There's so many ways to define that, but here's the way I would define it. Does your relationship with Christ regulate your life? I am not a perfect Christian. My daughter knows that better than most of you. Okay, my wife better than her. But the question we have to ask is not are we perfect, but are we regulated by God? Are we regulated by God? You see, if, if God is the regulator of my life, it will be much more likely that he will be the regulator of my children's lives. If there is a genuine commitment to Christ, for instance, if what God says is what matters most of all to me, then I will speak God's truth relative to every situation in life. In other words, we, we have to evaluate this or we have to evaluate that or we have to make a decision here or there. The simplest one, as we think about marriages, what kind of relationship are we going to allow children to have with other children, what, teens with other teens, young adults with other adults? and And do my children know that I am so serious about walking with Christ that I will absolutely insist they not form close relationships with unbelievers who will drag them down. Either paternal or fraternal relationships or romantic, either one. But see, they're going to learn that by watching me and by what regulates my life. Are my relationships so regulated by Christ that I don't get too close to unbelievers? that I have a proper understanding of the relationship between the world and the Christian. Because if I do, they're going to learn by watching, and, and, and they're going to be, they'll learn from my words, but they'll learn from my life. If speaking and acting like Christ is the norm in your home, your children will desire a mate who does the same. I, I One of the one of the most famous uh, youth workers, you've never heard of him because you don't travel in these circles, but when I was a young man, this fellow was well-known all over the country for youth work. His name was Wayne Rice. And he talked about the kind of music that young people uh, like. And uh, some of you will argue this with me, but you'll have to wait till you're older to see if it's true. And he says, the kind of music you tend to like is the kind of music you grew up with. There's a strong influence there over the kind of music that works with you, and it's not because you sat down and said, I'm going to make this choice. It's just what kind of flowed along in your life and in the long run of your life. What are your kids going to learn from you about family life? Christ has to regulate our life. If you respect God's authority, if you respect God's authority, you will teach your children to respect not only your authority, but that of all legitimate authorities. When they run off to school uh, as our kids and the teacher sends a note home and says, one of your children is talking too much in class, am I going to say, that teacher is stupid? Or am I going to say, hey, child, we've got something to work on here because I respect the authority. They will respect the authority. If I I am submitting to what God says in God's word, if if they know that I am so submitted to God's word as an authority that I have to apologize to them when my behavior is improper, they will learn that we have to submit to God. If Christ regulates your life and your children grow up respecting their parents, together with you there will be a mutual decision for marriage that will be a blessing to all. I believe that that's how we influence people. That's how we influence our children. Does a dad have a right to say yes or no? I think so. I said no twice out of three times. And then I said yes after that because I had some concerns. Now, I'll come back to that at the end. But the second thing he says, seems like we're shifting significantly, but so does, so does the Word of God. And we'll come back, and you'll see how this ties together in a minute. The second thing that Paul says here is very simply in verse 39, a widow or widower is free to remarry. We might say, well, that's just common sense. Well, it might be common sense, but God knows what things we need to know to be certain about the Christian life, and he saw fit to teach us this. And he even used it as an illustration in Romans chapter 7 about the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. So she has no adulteress, though she has married another man. God makes this very clear. The illustration with the law is this. When you accepted Christ, you died with Christ. You were raised to a newness of life. Therefore, the law has no more claim on your life. That's why we don't follow the old testament law the simple truth here is this marriage is not eternal we're not going to be married in heaven we're not going to populate our own planets and uh, if god puts it in your heart as a widow or widower to marry somebody else that's perfectly right and according to this chapter if god puts it on your heart to stay single that is perfectly right right It is between you and God. The third thing that really brings us to an important point about the... It's given to us by the widow, but clearly it's a principle for all of us, and I'll show you another scripture here in a minute, is this simple truth which is at the root of many difficulties in marriage. A believer is free to marry anyone who is in the Lord. A wife, verse 39, is bound by law as long as her husband lives, But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. This coincides completely with what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the passage we tend to quote more often about this topic. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The word yoking is the imagery of two animals that have been brought together in a harness to work together. He says, don't get harnessed together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? God goes on at length about this to really get the point across. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Don't get harnessed with an unbeliever. This has ramifications for more than just marriage. There can be other relationships that are a harnessing. To be equal partners in a business with an unbeliever is a harnessing that will present the same challenge, similar challenges to to marriage. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In a former church, one of our young men joined the military and was stationed in a foreign country. And after he was gone for some time, this was a young man who was very zealous to be part of the church. Um, I believe I baptized him after camp one year. One, after he was gone in the military for a while, and I'd lost track of him a little bit, his mom, who was a nominal Christian and came to church once in a great while, she called me up and said, so-and-so's gotten engaged and he can get married in this foreign country, but he needs to get married in the U.S. in order to be able to bring her here and the military rules and all of that type of thing. And she wanted to know if I would marry him. And I said, well, I'll have to talk to him first. And uh, just in case you're ever interested... If you ever ask me about doing a wedding, I'll get my date book out, and I'll say, well, let's make a date when you and your fiancé can come in, and we'll visit. I don't care if you're a church member or who, are, who you are. We're having that appointment before, before we go farther. And so uh, the mom said, well, I just said to him, does she really love you? Because the mom is thinking uh, that this girl is going to ride his coattails to U.S. citizenship. And what do you think was my first question to, to him? Is she a Christian? And what do you think the answer was? Well, blah, 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 blah. Hey, either Christian or they're not. And coming from that country, it would be very not. be very different. Let me just answer this question briefly. I... I please don 't ask me when the book is going to be done, but this is part of what i 'm trying to write, trying to really communicate this accurately and fully uh, in a book on forming relationships. Why is marriage to a believer vital? I had I had this discussion with somebody a few years ago, and I realized i 've never preached on this, and I said, "God help me because it 's my fault." if I don't preach God's word and people make bad decisions. And so I just want to touch on this a little bit today. Why is marriage to a believer vital? Based on the text that we just read from from 2 Corinthians, righteous living results in God's positive parental involvement in our life. Okay. Now, I am not saying that you earn your salvation. I'm not saying that you merit more of the Christian life. What I'm saying is that righteous living brings God's positive parental involvement, and unrighteous living, according to Hebrews 12, brings what kind of parental involvement by God? Discipline, chastening, okay? Does God hate us? Does God kick us out of his family? Absolutely not. Why does God discipline us? Is God, does God punish us for our sin? Does God punish us for our sin? Does God punish us for our sin? Who did he punish? Could you pay for one of your sins? Could you absorb the wrath of God for one of your sins? No. Boy, I want you to get this down, class. No, God does not punish me for my sin. And parents, especially young parents... You don't punish your children for your, their behavior. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is one word correction. It's correction. Johnny, I'm going to give you a little tangible reminder that that behavior is wrong and this behavior is right. And the next time you get ready to do it, I'm going to say, Do you want a reminder? And if Johnny is a smart kid, which almost all kids are, they go, no. It'll take them a few times to get there. That's what correct. That's what discipline is. The word discipline in the scripture literally means training. And so does God bring negative things to life so that we will turn and go in the right direction? Yes. And the first and simplest of those negative things is guilt. When you feel guilty, that's good. Because God is saying, that's wrong. In your heart, you're going, oh, I know it's wrong. If you press beyond the guilt, you will develop a callous conscience. Don't do that. Confess your sin, turn, and do the right thing. But God will bring other things. But they are not punitive. He is not making you pay for your sin because you cannot pay for your sin. Righteous living, though, when you make righteous choices... God in heaven is is there helping you along and blessing you and encouraging you. Man, that's what I want. I confess my sin so that God will be positively involved with my life. That doesn't mean I won't have trials and difficulty. Don't worry, I haven't started preaching the health and wealth business. I'll still have trials, but when I face into that trial, I won't be looking back going, oh man, God is correcting me. No, God just thinks that I need to grow up a little bit more this way and that way and so on. The other thing that you've got to come to grips with is this, righteous living will result in conflict with the unbeliever. If he, now, if you if you are not if you are a Christian who really doesn't care about living for the Lord, then there's not going to be a problem. If you don't care about following God's word, but here's the reality, even the secular world says this. There's no such thing as a middle-aged as a middle-aged liberal. Because when people get married and have kids, when they get married and have kids, all of a sudden when the kids come along, they start going, "Ooh, there's some important things here." And as your kids grow and they start coming into teenage years and you're starting to look at marriage, you're going, ooh, what kind of person are they going to marry? And all of a sudden, a lot of this stuff starts to be important. Whether you can see it or not, looking at it from your young vantage point, righteous living will result in conflict with the unbeliever. When two people are in love, young people are in love, and in heat, there can seem to be very little conflict over anything spiritual. But what will you do when your partner sins, when they actually do something wrong toward you, and they refuse to handle it in a godly way? What recourse will you have? None. None. What will you do when they say, no, I don't want to go to church? What will you do when you say, I want to support a missionary? I want the kids to go to Camp Gilead. What will you do when your teenage child says, I want birth control pills? And they say, sure. See, if you're content to live that kind of a Christian life, Lord bless you. He won't. I mean, you just take it. I love this little quote. It's kind of over the top, but I think it's well put. If you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you will be sure to have trouble with your (laughs) father-in-law. Listen. Believe me, trust me, I want what is best for you. I've I, I got a good wife and a family. This is about what's best for you. Throughout this passage, look at verse 35. This verse 35, in some way, is kind of a, 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 the foundational sentiment that Paul is using to write all of this truth. He says, I want you to be able to serve the Lord without distraction. That ought to be a theme concept as you think about marriage. And as you you think about marriage, you ought to think about relationships that way too. Saying What kind of a relationship will lead to a marriage that leaves me free and undistracted to serve the Lord? And obviously that can't be to an unbeliever. The fourth thing that this passage says is this the decision to marry is for life. Did you notice that in verse 39? A wife is bound by law how long? As long as her husband lives. Uh, I don't think our society considers marriage to be for life. They they talk that way, they use the word forever and some of those kinds of languages, but, but really that's not what they're thinking. Here's what I want to leave you with today, and this will come back around to that parental element as well. The decision to marry is for life. How can you make such a significant decision wisely? That's really the question. Well, first of all, there's got to be scriptural instruction. The starting point for the Christian always has to be God's word. And look what Jesus promised in terms of following his way. The thief does not come to steal, and to ki- but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. The thief is the father-in-law we just read in that previous quote. It's Satan. Satan wants to consume your life with difficulty in this world to keep you from embracing Christ as Savior. And if you've embraced Christ as Savior, he wants to keep you from serving the Lord and worshiping him with a whole heart. And so he orchestrates the stuff of the world to oppose that, to oppose Christianity. If you follow the worldly path into marriage, what you will reap is difficulty that that pushes you away from Christ. Can you overcome that? Absolutely. Christ can overcome everything. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Will you overcome that? Maybe, maybe not. But Jesus says his way, believing in him, following his truth, results in abundant life. Now, I, I will confess to you That since I was 19, I have been trying to follow the Lord. I don't know what it's like to live like as an adult who is married without the Lord. Okay, maybe it's wonderful. From what I see around me, and from the people that I see coming for help who have not been following the Lord, I think this verse is right on. And so when we talk about getting scriptural instruction first and foremost, what I am saying to you is, do you want an abundant life? Then follow this plan. Because is, that is where it leads. And that goes with everything in life, not just marriage. Paul put it this way. He who sows to his flesh, that is he who follows the thief and the worldly system, will of the flesh reap corruption or ruin But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due time we will reap if we don't lose heart. Um, God brought me through a season where I had to wait a little bit before he was ready to bring us together. More to that story than, than those few words. I didn't have to wait a long time, so I don't know what it's like to wait a long time for a husband or wife. I confess that to you. But I think it's worth waiting for to get it right. I think it's worth waiting for to get it right. I'm only 59 years old. For some of you, that's ancient. For some of you, that's middle age. But for 37 of those years, I've been watching people date, marry, come into crisis, reconcile, and sometimes divorce. And I'm here to tell you, as far as I can tell, there's only one path to a truly joyful, peaceful marriage, and that is God's path. So we start with scriptural instruction, and then we go to parental input. These verses are in the Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may be well with you. Where do I see the parental authority to influence marriage? It's right here. Are you a child until you're married? Are you a child until you're out of the house? When are you not a child and you're an adult? Uh, the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> I know my dad thought I was a child up until the day he died. That's why I never had a beard until then. God has placed parents in children's lives to give them birth and wisdom. And so godly children ought to very carefully listen to the input of their parents I realize there could be a whole sermon on this, and maybe there will be someday, but children, obey your parents in the Lord, honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you. You, If God is in your marriage, he can move in your parents' heart, whether they're godly or ungodly. And I think the prime example, if you want to study that more, is Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel appealed to the ungodly authority and said, could we please do something different, and what does it say? God gave him favor in the eyes of the ungodly authority, and things worked out well for Daniel. And I think that's the model we need to follow. It didn't bother me in the least to say no to the suitors of my two daughters the first time they asked because there were concerns that I had. And it wasn't with their character or something like that. It was just certain situations about, about where they were at in their marriages or their in their relationships, and 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 I needed to be satisfied because, folks, I will answer to God for how I manage my home. Ultimately, they'll answer to God for their choice to get married, but I'm going to answer for it too. And so I take that seriously. Now, there's a third kind of insight. And, uh, uh, you know, I hate to preach on this, but I think it's vitally important, so I have to. And that is that God says he wants those who are spiritual leaders in the church to lead and he wants people to pay attention to their guidance and instruction and wisdom from God's word. Uh, this passage from Peter that I, I've compressed down some parts of it summarizes that. The elders who are among you, I exhort, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. It is my responsibility and that of the other elders to give you spiritual leadership. Do I know everything you ought to do in your life? No. No. Do I know every decision you ought to make? No. But I know how God's word applies to every decision. And it certainly is the burden of my heart to help you succeed in every decision of your life. I don't want to be involved in every decision, please. I don't have time nor energy for that. That's not what I'm not, I'm not looking for work. But what I'm saying is, there is a source of wisdom that our, our, our society has become so individualistic that we say, hey, it's me, it's my life, I do what I want. You know what God says? You younger people submit yourselves to your elders. And then he goes on to talk about the virtue of humility. There might be something you've missed, there might not be. You might come and speak to one of the elders about your impending desire for engagement and they might just pat you on the back and say, great job! Wouldn't that be a blessing? Pastoral insight and then prayerful inquisition. Have you, if you have consulted God's word, consulted your parents, consulted your pastor, and I'm not saying wait till then to pray, but what I'm saying is, don't Come and tell me you prayed about it and God said it's okay, even though it's an unbeliever, even though you've been sleeping together, even though, even though, even though. But I prayed about it and God said it's okay. No, he didn't. Bible first, parent second, pastor third. Prayer to say, okay, God, I've done all my homework. I've done all my homework the best I know how to do it. But I just want to hold this decision up to you with open hands and say, if this is not your decision, will you please shut the door? Because more than anything, I want to marry the person you want me to marry. We could have called this the prayer of consecration. Romans 12one i um, I'm giving my life to you, God. I'm giving my marriage to you. But the whole idea of praying to have confidence comes from here. Don't worry. But pray, and what will be the result? The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. I did not have cold feet. We were engaged, we're approaching marriage. All I could think of was I can't wait to get this stupid summer internship at this church done so I can get married. But I'm telling you before that, before that, There was scriptural investigation. There was parental input. There was pastoral insight from a a counselor at at our school, uh, which we were at school, so we were away from our home pastors. And there was certainly prayerful inquisition. And the result was absolute rock-solid confidence going the wrong way. One more. A week from tomorrow... Uh, Sue and I will take off for a week of vacation we're going to go back east uh, I'm going to go to class but before I go to class we're going to go around visit some places where I lived when I was a kid and uh, we're going to go to the headquarters of ABWE in Niagara Falls and we're going to see more things in one week in New York and Pennsylvania than you should but we're going to do it um, I'm excited to show her these places that have been part of my life but she's only heard about secondhand. We've had almost 38 years together, and next week we will build some more great memories together. And that should be just normal. I don't think that's anything special except when compared to the ruin that I see in the world. And I just want to leave you with this thought based on that. A good marriage is worth waiting for and working for. It really is. And that's a big part of God's message in this chapter. There is some work that has to be done. There is some waiting that has to be done. Some timing issues. Some wisdom issues. Oh, it's tough to be patient when you're young. But it's good. It's good. Father, please take your word today and apply it to hearts. I do thank you for my... Spouse, for my wife, my partner. And I thank you for the family you've given us. And I don't take any credit for it, Lord. I give the credit to you because you showed us how and you led us along and you have kept us all along this journey. Father, I covet that for everyone. And I just pray that this church would be a place where we encourage good marriages and and where we help people when they struggle and, and where people are reconciled and built up and and helped to carry on and to know your joy and your peace as long as they both shall live. Make it so, Father. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.